0: Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England, and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode of Meaningful Journeys, I talk with Dr. Michael DiGiovine and Dr. Jae-Yoon Che. Dr. DiGiovine is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Westchester University in Pennsylvania in the United States, and Dr. Che is a Senior Academic at Bournemouth University in England. They have recently published an edited book entitled, Pilgrimage Beyond the Officially Sacred, Understanding the Geographies and Religion and Spirituality in Sacred Travel. In this podcast episode, we discuss their book, as well as their perspectives on what is sacred, what is pilgrimage, and new directions in the field of pilgrimage studies and sacred travel. I was so excited to see the book and see sort of a compilation of chapters because it's always really interesting in pilgrimage studies to see how sort of these thematic areas are emerging and then how people conceptualize the work of Mm -hmm. a variety of scholars and people coming from different professional disciplines. What I'd love to start out with talking about is what drew you to pilgrimage studies to begin with, or religious tourism. I've read your bios and and i I can kind of see the trajectory, but I think our listeners would love to hear your own stories about how you came into this field from an academic standpoint.
1: I can talk about my story. I, I came to pilgrimage studies in a very interesting way because uh, what happened was when I graduated college, I went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service and I thought I was going to be a diplomat and then, Things changed, political winds changed and all the other stuff. And I ended up getting a job just fortuitously. I, I wanted to travel to Italy because I'm Italian. I'm a dual citizen. My family, my mom's from Italy um, in a small town where they're known for a famous saint, Padre Pio. And so I got a job as a tour operator uh, running high-end educational tours in Asia, actually, and as well as in Italy. So I was in Japan a lot. Uh, I, we opened up Vietnam and Cambodia. We were some of the first people in I had traveled there from a that trip and then at a certain point I wanted to go back and study you know basically Cambodia and Vietnam and, and and how tourism and heritage practices impacted the development there. I was fortunate to go to University of Chicago and my master's thesis was published as my first book, The Heritage Scape. There's a lot of interesting things with that book but you know I'm really pleased it's been over obviously over 10 years and still being used and, and, and I'm really grateful for that but then when I was doing my dissertation um, I was married, and uh, we were thinking of having kids. And uh, you know, I was like, oh well, we're going to do Cambodia. And my wife is like, you know, maybe you know we <laughs> could go to Italy instead, you know. And I said, all right, well, <laughs> you know, it's a little more. She was born in Italy, although she's American. You know, she's not Italian uh, origin, and so she really wanted to go back as well. So I said, well, look, I've always wanted to study the cult of Padre Pio, the saints cult. It's you know, he's it, probably around here in this room somewhere because Italian Americans have have his images up all over. I didn't realize that Irish were super duper de- uh, devoted to him, Filipinos. He's the most prayed-to saint uh, in the world, actually, oh, more than Jesus, Mary, and St. Francis. And so I ended up, we ended up living in Pietrocina and, um, and studying the pilgrimage there. And so that's how I kind of transitioned from the tourism and, and tourism development and heritage into, into more pilgrimage <laughs> studies. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Interesting. <laughs> if I uh, could just follow up, I know from your publications that you are also Catholic. And Mm -hmm. so I'm curious about how your own Catholic practice or background has helped you sort of frame your own academic work.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I'm writing a paper on it now that will be in my uh, special issue on faith in the journal Religions that I'm co-editing with Mohammed Sharifi Tarani, who's a great young tourism management scholar in Iran. It's a very interesting thing because you sound like a lot of the Irish uh, priests that come on the trips. So the way that I did this ethnography was that I would I made friends with some Irish guides and Italian guides as well. And they would call me when they're in Petrochino. This is how I'd started. And I'd come down and I'd be their tour guide because I knew how to do it because I, I had worked in the tourism business. And she, they would always introduce me as, okay, this is our anthropologist and they're gonna take us around. And the Irish priest would be like, hmm, yeah, as anthropologist. So what do you think of all this stigmata stuff? Because Padre Pio is seeped in this, you know, mysticism. He had the stigmata for 50 years and all the other stuff. And I would find myself recounting, well, I was an altar boy and a lector and a knight of Columbus and blah, 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 and go through this pedigree of like why I'm Catholic or how I'm Catholic. And then I'm like, well, why am I doing that? You know, it's a relevant thing because I do bring, obviously, I am a practicing Catholic. My kids go to Catholic school Although I I love and I feel the transcendence in, in, in especially in, in a lot of areas in Japan and and Vietnam, um, so I'm not like a you know very hard orthodox kind of right wing kind of Catholic, but I am I am somebody who who does believe. But I think that that helps. I think that that having that faith helps because just like when I wrote my first book on the heritage scape about UNESCO and tourism. I was really, I felt that I was pushing back on a lot of the literature back in the 2000s, early 2000s and the 90s that were very critical of tourism by academics who weren't, who never worked in the tourism business, right? There's obviously, there's all the tourism business people who are still a little bit too apologetic of tourism, but then all the anthropologists, they're very critical of it without ever having been on the You know, we're not nefarious people sitting around in smoky rooms planning how to, you know, strip, you know, locals of their of their, you know, indigenous peoples of their integrity or anything. But the same thing, I think, I you know, coming as a Catholic to studying, especially Catholic pilgrimage, I, I bring that knowledge, I bring that understanding, which is very, very important with, with ethnography, right? Ethnography as, as, a, as a method, we do participant observation where you kind of like one step in as a local, part, uh, as a participant, and one step out as trying to be as objective and analysis as possible. And so I already have that kind of dual pulls. And and so, you know, it just was a matter of managing that and understanding to be self-reflexive and, and to understand where I can productively use the ideas that I have and the feelings that I have and where I should be a little bit objective and analytical or critical. And the second part of that, too, is I think it was a real boon to doing the ethnographic research because the pilgrims themselves could tell that it was a genuine kind of devotion, I would sit with them and pray with them and say the rosary and discuss these theological ideas or these faith ideas with them uh, in a way that even their tour guides didn't do. And, you know, the tour guides in Italy, especially, you know, they bring you to a church to have mass and they go outside and like smoke cigarettes for an hour. I would go in and and pray with them. and, And I would have the, especially the Irish say, well, you're different than the other tour guides. And they would open up and they would talk to me because they felt comfortable. They felt that they knew where I was coming from. And so, you know, as long as you can selectively deploy those different personalities, everybody has has those different uh, aspects of their, themselves. Um, mine just happens to be one where I where I am a practitioner, let's say, as well as uh, an anthropologist.
0: And and what about you, Jay? What drew you into pilgrimage studies uh, and or religious tourism? Initially, when I
2: moved to California, I grew up in, I was born in Korea and I grew up in Korea, but I never talked about uh, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, and Buddhism. But when I moved to California, all my friends are doing meditation, mindfulness, yoga. And since I'm from Asia, they were asking me about, you know, this kind of Buddhism stuff I had no idea of. So that's how I got kind of interested in, and I went to meditation centers and Buddhist uh, temples with my American friends and I actually learned yoga and medicine everything from California and I found it quite interesting because Asia, we had a Buddhism and yoga is from Asia but all my Asian friends go to shopping and they don't care about this kind of stuff, but all my American friends are crazy about Buddhism and meditation and every summer they go to India and they go to um, India for, uh, actually one of my friends lived in cave for three months in India for practicing his meditation and I met these kind of people and they talk about um, going to Bagan, going to Laos, but they all became my research uh, informants and they all say they're not Buddhist. But like Michael said, the Catholic pilgrims, they smoke cigarettes and things, but these guys, they're not Buddhists, they're not pilgrims, but they go to India every year. They practice meditation for three months, sometimes in cave. Um, so I was just interested in this um kind of secular pilgrimage first before traditional pilgrimage. If they're not Buddhist, if they don't want to be Buddhist, why do you do this? And that was my initial question. And I did a master's and dissertation, PhD dissertations on this. And after PhD, I actually went to these places they mentioned when I was in the States and kept following these um, Western tourists who come to secular pilgrimage sites, and I just kept asking the same questions. If you don't admit or don't want to be Buddhist, why are you doing this? And you seem so serious, more serious than actually Buddhist people. Like for example, in Chiang Mai, Thai people come to Buddhist temple and they donate money and make merit for their success or getting into good college or success in business. They don't actually meditate and work on their minds. But all these tourists, they're supposed to be not serious, but they're actually really dead serious about their practice. So that's what I've been kind of working on. So why these secular pilgrims, actually tourists, are more serious about this? So that's that's been kind of my
0: interest. That actually transitions into a a question i have around the the concept of what is sacred who defines what is sacred who authorizes it and you're talking about almost individuals who create a sense of what is sacred and then almost pursuing these sacred journeys outside Mm -hmm. of a a group um, movement it's it's an individual type of quest in your book, um, you talk about, um, well, the sort of the whole premise of the book um, is about this idea of uh, what is officially and then unofficially sacred. And I'd love to hear both of your uh, perspectives on what is sacred. Uh, many of our listeners are not going to have the the background um, in anthropology that you have laid out and sort of a uh, historical context for this. So if you could talk more about that now, that would be fantastic.
2: For me, um, it's really um, down to individual level, like if it has anything sacred meaning to anybody, and then it has to be sacred so i'm pretty much about we shouldn't authorize the concept for anyone and they should authorize themselves uh, what sacred is or is defined for i am quite not against it but uh, i get into this trouble often when i go to conferences when i talk about meaning of a sacred or even pilgrimage and people are asking why how can it be pilgrimage if they go to yoga or i'm i was going to talk about my chapter later about Cardinal pilgrimage, right? How is it pilgrimage? But my point of view is, if these informants or these people practicing define that as a sacred, or it is pilgrimage to them for their own meaning, for their own value, then it has to be sacred, and also for even for them, sacred meaning of a sacred it keeps on kind of changing over time, over culture, or again individually.
1: I think what was kind of driving our book in general is that pilgrimage so often, and this is now in the second, what, the second decade of the of the 21st century, uh, it's still a lot of people define it as a religious journey. Like if you look up mm. things on pilgrimage, it's a religious journey. And so what we were trying to do here, I mean, from the 90s, anthropologists have said it's not, relig- you know, we have to be able to tease this out a little bit more because as as jay said you know there's you know everybody kind of calls things pilgrimage even if they're not you go to a star trek convention or you go to a you know dolly world or dolly pardon people are calling them pilgrimages so we have to be like all right who can authorize this use of this term and we were trying to get away from the officially sacred or the religious um which is this authorized kind of category of of religiosity for a lot of reasons and try to to bring it into that postmodern 1990s even, postmodern study. I mean, this really isn't new, but it's still persistent. You know, to be very brief, I think, about it, religion is problematic for a lot of reasons, one of which is that it's a very Western category, as we all know, and I'm sure your, your, your listeners know. Westerners put on, kind of invented the term religion uh, and used it so diffusely in the colonial era to try to understand practices that seem to be kind of relevant or, or parallel to the Christian ideas but it didn't really fit all the way i mean hinduism is not a religion for example there's no centralized authority but the concept of religion of course you know comes from this latin term relegate which means to bind as in a book like we're all pages in one book that are bound together so it's really about the people as a community it's it's, it's not really about individuals um as much as it is about individuals being joined together and of course in christianity you have saint paul talking about we're all the body of christ you know, and when you're taking communion, you're eating, you know you're basically eating Jesus, you know, person, and you become actually physically part of of the body of Christ as well. Um, and that's really where it comes from. But it doesn't translate very well in other in other religions. And then you have all of this great ground up, bottom up kind of movements around the world for people traveling to sites that they find as what I like to call hyper meaningful uh, centers. You know, and these centers can be varied. Some of them are like Rome, you know, something like very center of a, a, a political center of a religion, but some are landforms and places that for the person is hyper meaningful. And so we wanted to try to, to focus on the idea of the sacred rather than the religious for pilgrimage and, and kind of religious tourism uh, studies.
0: One of the uh, points in your intro chapter uh, that I made a note of has to do with this authorization piece. Mm. And it appears that the the three types of authorization that you uh, identify have to do with groups um, and the authorization of, of group pilgrimage. And so I'm curious about the transition that you're talking about in that in pilgrimage studies we know is sort of the this is the space we're in now is sort of this individual uh the meaning that the individual brings the individual's definition of sacred so is that also what you mean when you say bottom up uh, are you talking about the individual initiating that um the the kind of bringing the meaning uh rather than sort of the top-down authorization of the group movement to a pilgrimage
1: I think so. (laughs) I think so. If I'm trying to understand, all I was thinking about when you were talking about this, I'm like, wow, that sounds very Protestant, (laughs) you know, like very individual. (laughs) And I think that's also another one of these things that why, when you think of pilgrimages, right, uh, with the exception of maybe Anglicanism, maybe Lutheranism a little bit, and of course, New Age, which really isn't, uh, you know, really Christian, although they have the Christian overtones, Protestants traditionally have been very, very anti-pilgrimage. mean, Martin Luther, that was one of his theses about pilgrimage to Rome. And I should say that there are saints, uh, very doctors of the church before him, uh, like Saint Gregory of Nyssa and stuff, who also criticized pilgrimage as well um, because of this popular movement where you can get, at, you know, individuals shouldn't be allowed the authority in a way to declare what is sacred and what isn't and, and how you should do it. And of course, for the for Protestants like Martin Luther, it was all about like it's a waste of money. And time and you should and your obligations to your family you know you're going to be pulled off track um you know one of my favorite publications not to plug other things but my book was uh, what's it called the seductions of, of pilgrimage is one of the favorite that i've done and it really traces that kind of, of of trajectory in terms of what pilgrimage is and how it could be very seductive both for people but how people can be seduced off of it, and on of it. what we mean though by bottom up is more about you know, authorizing forces in general are top down. I mean, that's really what it's about. It's about politics. It's about the ways in which power is deployed over other people. I mean, that's kind of the classic definition of politics. So when you're getting all of these different people maybe doing different things that um, perhaps aren't in line with doctrine or canon, uh, and again, this is very problematic in Eastern religions where there aren't really can, you know, canon texts. I mean, there, there, are, there are definitely canonical texts like Vedas and stuff, but there's not doctrine in the same way, like the catechism. But when they're going against that, you know, you could do one of two things. And this is the same thing for saints cults. This is where we brought kind of this idea of saints cults and my Padre Pio stuff into, um, into that introduction in this book. Is that um, you could do what you're, you're forced with one of two things. You're forced to either push against it and try to get rid of it, right? Say that this is not approved. Don't do it. Stop. Which actually um, Pope John the Twenty Third tried to do with Padre Pio pilgrimages and things like that. He thought Padre Pio was like sent from the devil, and you know we shouldn't do it. Or you can what what Max Weber would say, um, you know, um, routinize the charisma or co-opt the the charisma that that pilgrimage has and bring it into the fold, normalize it. But either way, you're doing it from the top down to try to to, to try to get people together. When we say bottom up, what we're what we're meaning is not that. Um, necessarily uh, individuals are or, or, um, authorizing pilgrimages per se, but that we need to be able to focus less on what the power brokers and the hegemonic powers say about what is pilgrimage and what isn't, and we have to focus more on what other people are saying and doing uh, as well. Discourse and practice together are very, very important. And I think that also that's what you were talking about, Jay, with with your friends going and saying, well, we're not Buddhists, but we're doing these processes even more in a more orthodox fashion than people who call themselves Buddhists are. So who is a Buddhist and who is a pilgrim in this situation? So we, anthropologists would always, as as an emic form of research, ethnography always takes that bottom-up approach. They say, well, let's start with what the people are actually saying they're doing, as opposed to what we have our preconceptions about what should be categorized as, because native categories are different than the privileged categories that we have. I don't know if that answers the question, but... <laughs> yeah,
0: it, it, it actually made me think, uh, actually listening to both of you, um, in terms of authorization, isn't there some level of authorization that's occurring just by the publication of this book that uh, in terms of bringing, bringing pilgrimages into the fold and then giving them a sense of credibility, uh, that this is also a pilgrimage as as are other pilgrimages. I mean, I I think that in these types of collected, edited works um, that highlight individual pilgrimages, are we not also authorizing forces in some way? We're
1: hypocrites.
0: (laughs) 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 But then I was thinking, I was very
2: tired of um, people commenting me how did Macau casinos pilgrimage and I was say it's secular pilgrimage, and there are lots of scholars studying about secular pilgrimage, like Walden Pond and, you know, Elvis' place house and these are all kind of secular pilgrimage. But it was hard to convincing them this is a kind of pilgrimage. So I wanted to have a book or at least special issue or some kind of a collection that demonstrate actually many scholars from anthropology, geography, environmental studies, even with one author Ecology. from- uh,
1: The psychology
2: yeah and all these uh, disciplines people in discipline studying about secular pilgrimage and read this book i'm not you know some kind of fraud you know so this is also kind of process i wanted to not authorize but demonstrate (laughs) Um, the secular pilgrimage is a thing it's a concept it's a theory it's a concept that many scholars are um, studying but one problem I have found the anthropologists and geographers are using kind of different terms for secular pilgrimage. I know anthropologists would call it secular pilgrimage, right, Michael? But some geographers call it like post pilgrimage, and different disciplines have different labels. I think that's a huge problem for going forward with this discussion. It's right. very fragmented, with the terminology wise. So I wanted to, um, anyways, keep them together. We all call it sec- secular pilgrimage, and have an agreement. I know that's also not, not very bottom up. I don't know, but uh, well, you know,
1: the other thing too is. is that we didn't write a monograph, right? Which I think would be maybe a little bit hypocritical in that sense, because then the monograph is really authorizing it. But we do have, I don't know how many, about ten different voices that actually take very different perspectives on this. So, I don't think that there's any that we were authorizing any one particular saying this is the way you have to see it, but rather, we asked everybody to kind of explore the juxtaposition between sacred and profane and where the the gray area is and is authorized and popular uh, and, and where that kind of gray area is kind of like a big Venn diagram and and where you fall in the middle of those is really what we see here. And they and took a lot of different perspectives. You know, not everybody were anthropologists or even qualitative researchers. I mean, we even have something that's very, very tourism management studies, you know, at the end about Rome with, with you know, very rigid uh, surveys and things um, just to show really that, that you could also be doing this kind of perspective, even outside of the wishy-washy qualitative kind of stuff that i do you know and and you know so i think that we're not authorizing one particular perspective but we did want to introduce let's say introduce this idea of the sacred and tease out the various forms and and with this with the idea of authorization i think you can't talk about sacred and profane without understanding what the authorizing forms are right because i because just putting in that that concept of who is saying it's sacred already authorizes it. And so, what we wanted to do with that discussion is to bring that to the fore that says, hey, don't take this for granted, right? There are people, including us, and you're right, we, we were authorizing by using certain terms. People do this, and you don't have to necessarily subscribe to that. You have to understand the, the social context and the, the, the practices behind
0: it. I almost immediately thought about the earlier work of John Ede and Michael Sal now in their. Uh, work around contesting the sacred, and I'm curious uh, about wh- how you were thinking about this. Was, is this a is this a follow up to their to, to the two works around contesting the sacred? Is this a third installation? Is this uh, what has changed? How are you taking the baton, if at all, from them?
1: I would be honored if people would think that this is the third, you know, to, you know, to follow after because what you're you're talking about. I know John. Well, we've collaborated um, in, in a few occasions, and and I have to mention here in the podcast because I still feel bad about it. John and I wrote uh, a whole encyclopedia entry on pilgrimage for this this very interesting encyclopedia called the Encyclopedia of Miracles, and his name was left off the publication, and I still feel bad about it. So people only cite me. So John, you're on this that you should cite him too, um, because he, did, you know, it was a, it was a collaborative effort. But, um, you know, with John, so John Eade and the late Michael Salno were already contesting something else, is, is, is what you're getting at, which is uh, Victor and Edith Turner, the symbolic anthropologist from, they're the great symbolic anthropologist, in their ideas of uh, communitas and pilgrimage. Victor Turner, for better or for worse, and a lot of people are upset, I mean, he's they're both late now, they're both no, no longer here, but for better or for worse, he brought in pilgrimage, and therefore, tourism as a legitimate field of inquiry for anthropology. Others have done it before, but but he really brought it in with by applying his notion that he did on Ndembu African rituals, the idea of communitas, which he coins. And communitas, very briefly for those who don't know symbolic anthropology or anything, communitas does not mean community, but what it actually means is this existential, spontaneous feeling of mutual humanity uh, among ritual participants. So whether you're pledging in a fraternity or being, you know, getting married to your partner or doing pilgrimage, he, he posits in, in this, in, in his work, in his dissertation work in the sixties on um, rituals, like um, coming of age ceremonies that everybody who are the practitioners of these rituals get this sense of, of mutual fellow feeling, mutual, Um, understanding that we're all of the human race. Now, it's very hippie defeat, It's the 60s and the 70s. He spent some time in Palo Alto, you know, as well. Um, So that definitely informed his ideas when he then did this for pilgrimage. But what he was able to do was take classic um, ritual theory and symbolic anthropology and bring it into pilgrimage theory. Now, the problem, and we can see what we were just talking about with authorizing forces, he also foresaw that while you might have this anti-structural Feeling of communitas, this this idea that, hey, even though you might be rich and I might be poor and you're wearing Nikes and I'm wearing name brands, in this we're all we're all human for that fleeting moment that we're in this pilgrimage, right It's very anti-social structure. It's a temporary thing that um because it's kind of so charismatic and so uh, seductive in a way, the religious authorizing authorities would want to co-opt that. And so he said, well, that's spontaneous or existential communitas. But then, once the church or somebody gets wind of this, they want to authorize it. It becomes normative communitas. It becomes something that they start to institute norms to try to replicate those spontaneous feelings and ideologies. And I see this all the time, like in my you know Irish pilgrims who um, I love them so much uh, going to, to Italy. they they often get very um upset about little, you know touristy kinds of things, you know, and they're very, very religious. and but they get very mad, for example, when you give them, when Italians serve tea because we don't know how to do tea in Italy. Uh, you know, Italians, as you know, you know, we, we like we like hot coffee, uh, hot milk and, and like lukewarm coffee. We have the cappuccinos and stuff, but we do that for tea too. But they like really boiling hot tea and cold milk and they get all upset. But what will happen is a priest will, because they'll get like really seriously mad, the priest will come in and be like, This is pilgrimage, not tourism, you know, you have to remember, you know, that and that is ideological communitas. It's saying like, you know, you gotta get get through this. So John uh, Eid and Michael Salno said, you know, this happens all the time in pilgrimage. We see this happening all the time. We need to push back and not be so like, just accept that communitas happens all the time. And they take it, they have a, a lot of really helpful ideas about what constitutes pilgrimage. But the crux of the book is that pilgrimage is not predicated on communitas, but actually the opposite, on contestation. And that is a very postmodern idea. You know, this is 1991 they wrote this, not 1976 or 1978 when Victoria e. Turner wrote hers. And this is this idea that the actual meaning of pilgrimage itself is built on the negotiations and contestations, and you know, if we want to use Bourdieu, which they didn't, but you know, this positioning and position taking the struggles um, between different groups that are traveling there. You know, different groups, I mean, even in the Padre Pio pilgrimages, they will carry their own banners from their own. Pounds, that's not community. That's the opposite of communitas, you know? And so they really recognize that um, as well. So to bring it to, to ours, I think that we wanted to kind of get a midpoint there. Cause I do believe, I do, I have felt communitas even in Asia and praying in Buddhist temples in Japan and in Vietnam and of course Angkor and, and things like that. So I don't think that it's religious, you know, it, but it is this, you do get this, this kind of crowd feeling, crowd mentality. Um, but at the same time, we have to understand the meanings from the bottom up. Every individual has very different individual meanings, and they often kind of come in conflict with each other, even at the same time as you're feeling unified with people. The, the unity is in the diversity. The unity is in the, the contestation. And what comes out of those negotiations um, also, um, uh, you know, create what what our meaning is, uh, the lasting meaning of, of, of And And just to, and then I want Jay to talk a little bit, but... To, the same stuff is going on at the same time in heritage studies as well. And I actually started talking about heritage before I did the pilgrimage, but it's the same kind of concept. Heritage, you get this authorizing force that says, this is world heritage. UNESCO comes down, this is world heritage. Uh, and then you have all the other people who say, yes, we recognize that it's really hyper-meaningful and really valued, but we don't understand what you're talking about. And they start to fight and they start to contest and they start to even even protest and stuff. And from all of that fomenting, there's actually a unity of meaning that comes out of it over time, and that's a very similar. Similar. Practice.
0: Did you have anything you wanted to say about that, Jay? Actually, while listening to Michael, I was I kept thinking
2: about the Macau casino pilgrimage. Can I kind of continue on? Yes, because I was actually going to yeah. to
0: ask about that next. Um, the the chapter that you too, and Michael O'Regan wrote um, in your book is a very interesting, you you referenced it earlier in our conversation around this Chinese mm. pilgrimage, um, so I'd love to hear more about that.
2: Or well, most of the pilgrimage literature is written by European or American scholars and Eurocentric or Eurocentric context really, right? So I wanted to write something kind of beyond the European-American, you know, the perspectives so I, I was interested in writing some something in Asian context. And I lived in Macau for two years and also first out, out there, Michael, Oregon. And we used to go to casinos just for fun. And we have found that there's a very serious parent there, like Chinese gamblers. They take a ferry and come to Hong Kong and arrive in uh, Macau ferry terminal and casino buses pick. And they come to this casino, famous casino hotels and they all stay in um, lucky number rooms, like with three and eight. They only stay in these rooms and they come to this um, casino area. But before they enter casino area, all casinos in Mako have a huge lucky charms like golden dragon or golden trees or crystal diamonds. So they seriously pray. People, they uh, go to casino and then they do um, gambling. And actually, there is a community in casino, in like, um, believe it or not. So all kind of gamblers coming here from China uh, without asking jobs or status or anything, they become immediately like fellows and friends. And they kind of create this group around these casino tables. And they do start chanting, hoi, hoi, hoi. That means um, turnover, turnover cards, And if they do this chanting they think they can change the card number so the number becomes a lucky number so they do if you go to Macau casinos you hear this this chanting everywhere hoi 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 so it felt like uh, being in a temple chanting I was uh, thinking this is like a temple this is whole thi- thing is like a pilgrimage they have a shared the values they have a shared the meanings they have a shared the activities and there's a myth evoked they all felt like a pilgrimage and then I was thinking about the Alexander Moore's uh, article on Walt Disney as a playful pilgrimage that was written in 1980 and there was really really similar thing was happening the meat the shared um, rituals and serious rituals even though it's in, in the magic kingdom and casinos right so I was thinking about playful pilgrimage first and started uh, um, interviewing Chinese gamblers about why they're there and what do they do before they're gambling and they do really share the very similar rituals they're sharing. So that's how we, I kind of started writing this paper about how uh, casinos can be kind of Chinese pilgrimage in, again, in a Chinese context.
1: I think it was, you were trying to be a little provocative I think in that, you know, I didn't, I had a little bit of a hand in in that article but it was really uh, you two. But even the idea of the playful pilgrimage, play, right? Play, that concept of play in the homo ludens was one of the earliest uh, discussions in, in qualitative research in anthropology on, on tourism, actually. I can't remember the guy who did it, but it was, in the I think, even in the 60s. And, and it's the reason why tourism and pilgrimage wasn't researched earlier. It took until the 90s to really have anthropologists or the 2000s to accept us, uh, tourism, uh, anthropologists of tourism, uh, to accept that that this is something that we should look at because they always said, oh, it's just play, right? But as Geertz said in the in in the, in the, in the late 90s, you know, deep play is actually very very important. You know, read his article in the Interpretations of cultures, chapter in deep play and the Balinese cockfight. Things that seem to be playful, right, actually can be very evocative of of great social uh, context. You could read it for so many things: gender roles religious ideas, cosmology, um, politics, economics, all of that stuff. So play, the problem is in pilgrimage studies, I think we still, I, there's still people who really are like, you know, pilgrimage is not play. You know, they're they're like those the tourists and the pilgrims themselves saying that this is pilgrimage, not tourism. And I know some really great anthropologists of pilgrimage as well, who would also push back on me when I would say things like, well, pilgrimage seems to be, you know, a subset of tourism. Like we can get the big umbrella kind of term that pilgrimage is this type of mobility that's hyper-meaningful. That's my, my big thing that whenever I define pilgrims, I call it a hyper-meaningful journey. Tourism is a meaningful journey. It certainly can be. But for those people that it, it takes on extra meaning, that's where I think you can start to say, you know, this, this could be pilgrimage. And there's still people who are like, no, 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 you know, that's play. And this is pilgrimage is serious stuff, even if they're looking at secular things. And so I think when you're talking about playful, I love the, the, the title, which I had nothing to do with that idea of being a playful pilgrimage is almost oxymoronic and so you're already foregrounding this idea that you're really trying to push the envelope of what can be considered pilgrimage and what can't the the um other oxymoron that you have and that we have in that chapter is um that you're saying you can't go from top down and say this isn't pilgrimage because it doesn't conform to these kinds of categories of what we assume is sacred and everything else um and you're actually looking at the practices themselves but then, you know, we're also saying you should ask the people themselves. And I'm not so sure that everybody who are in the casinos are actually saying, well, I do believe this is a pilgrimage. Like, for example, when they go to Elvis's house or maybe even Michael Jackson's Never, Neverland, if people still do that, they will say, I'm making a pilgrimage here. I'm making a pilgrimage to Cooperstown, New York, from Baseball Hall of Fame because I love it. And this is my thing. It's a pilgrimage. Right. They will say that. And then and it's usually the scholars who are like, well, that's not really religious. I don't Right. And, and that's what we're saying. You got to listen to the people. And then, of course, in this Macau chapter, it's kind of like some of them are saying it and some of them aren't. And it's where do you, where's the authority and the authorization of the expert, right? Is also being being pulled in here. Like we can look at all of the different practices that people are doing and say, hey, this looks like a non conventional type of pilgrimage. But then when you ask people and they, they might not agree with that, what do you do there? How do you present that? And if, as an anthropologist or qualitative researcher, we would say, well, we got to present both sides of the story. We shouldn't say that our expertise isn't warranted or wanted. But at the same time, we still need to recognize and not silence the voices uh, and let their ideas in, uh, of what they're doing be heard.
0: Is there a piece here uh, uh, around functionality uh, for particular, so you're talking about the Chinese people, who people coming from China to the casino or casinos, um, is this a functional, um, when you're looking at the, the the rituals and behaviors and kind of the group dynamic that occurs, uh, are we talking about something that ha- maybe rather than looking at motivations, we're looking at functional uh, sort, sort of, yeah, just from a different perspective?
2: Functional means, you mean
0: practical?
2: But or they're doing the rituals are actually getting good luck? So there's a functional there. But one thing I also want to mention was actually this whole ritual scene is kind of created by all these casinos. So these casinos want them to have these rituals. So kind of they enjoy. And in China, they don't have religions anyways, but they want to have some kind of rituals. So Macau casinos create this kind of like No temple space for them and come here and you do rituals and they really like it. And just like Walt Disney, all Chinese gamblers want to go to Macau once in a lifetime. On the other side, it's kind of some kind of a commercial um, control. The Macau casinos want to make money and they want to create this ritual and they want them to come and and they think this is kind of some kind of a healing uh, experiences, because in China, they cannot do gamble and they cannot do many things, but in Macau, they kind of are free. So they feel, the informants said they're very healed and they have some kind of emotional, psychological release when they're in Macau and casinos. So that can be kind of called functional, but at the same time, this whole thing is kind of controlled by these commercial entities, so there, there might be something to actually further discuss.
1: If you're talking about structural functionalism as a, as a theory as well, I mean, what you just said, that is the classic Durkheim idea of collective effervescence, you know, that, that happens in a ritual, which is a precursor to what Victor Turner would call communitas, where they, they're bottled up and they can't, they need some sort of a ritual or something to um, in periods of anomie and, and alienation, periods where they're starting to feel that, that, that they're not part of a, a group anymore. To be able to have a very socially sanctioned, structured way of, of, of release is very, very important. Victor Turner in that Ndembu ritual, I think in 1964 is the book, you know, he also talks about ritual as, as a performance and, and almost in, in theatrical terms. Because it's a it's a safe way to play out frustrations that you might have. And there's a lot of, of literature in, in, in religious texts. I mean, my my colleague, for example, um, Paul Stoller, the great anthropologist Paul Stoller, who teaches with me at Westchester, he he studies the Songhe uh, of Niger and their spirit possession ceremonies. And a lot of the the, the spirits that classes of spirits that possess people. Uh, end up being spirits of like the the colonial powers or or um, really anti-Muslim because it's it's an Islamic state, but these guys are are, are indigenous animists and and shamans, um, you know that make fun of uh, the, the, the 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 French overlords or the or the Islamic imams and stuff like that. And of course you can't put them in jail because it's not me; it's the spirit that took over my body. So whether or not we believe in that, what is happening in those things is it's a, it's a way of, of giving a, a performance, uh, performing the tensions that you have and releasing them. Uh, and at the same time, that creates, um, you know, social unity because we're all in it together and we all recognize that this is what's going on. I mean, same thing with Halloween something like that. And I always tell my students, I mean, you know, I have two little kids and, and, you know, every day I tell them, don't talk to strangers, don't take candy from strangers, be afraid of murderers. And then once a, once a year, we force them to dress up like murderers and go around begging for candy for strangers. I mean, why do we do it? I'd be put in jail if it was, if I did it today, (laughs) but on Halloween we're able to do it because it's that, that's in functionalism. That is that socially approved method of getting all that release. And we actually join together because of that. And and I think that that's part of what's going on there in in the casinos in Macau. Mm-hmm.
2: And they kind of link to my next project. I'm calling it yoga pilgrimage. So these non-Western Buddhist, non-Buddhist Western people coming to these yoga centers in Southeast Asia, they they say they're kind of creating again their belonging communities you know, it's kind of anti-structure and all these kind of hippie-like things. But at the same time, these commercial yoga centers are creating these rituals again, and they want them to come every year for this kind of emotional religion transformation and things. So this secular pilgrimage space in Southeast Asia with, with yoga context, they're against institutionalized religions, so they don't want to be religious. So that's why they come to this kind of a yoga space um, and then create this communitas. But at the same time, they're controlled by this commercialized, you know, effort again. So that that's kind of my next uh, project I'll, I'll, I'll be working on. Sure.
1: And, you know, what you were just saying, and I think this, this goes in not to hijack your whole podcast here, Heather, but, uh, <laughs> you know, this brings it into the really relevant uh, uh, period that we're in with the COVID period, because what -hmm. what you were saying before about about the the casinos structuring, uh, the the actual space itself is still important, right? In pilgrimage, there are two forms, and John Eat again, talks about this in in, in other things that he's written, that there's interior pilgrimage as well as exterior pilgrimage. There's that actual mobility aspect, but you're usually being mobile and traveling from a profane center or periphery to a sacred center to have an interior movement. And, you know, St. Augustine talks about that. and all that other stuff. The space then becomes very important. Mobility also becomes very important. It's not necessary, I don't think, in pilgrimages. And we can go out to Walden Pond uh, that maybe we live nearby and sit and meditate or do whatever we need to do and feel that transcendentalism in nature and everything. But there is something about the space. And, you know, Simon Coleman wrote a very interesting chapter, that, that lead chapter in, in our book that talks about the spatial aspects of cathedrals in England and and how they are fostering this, just like the casinos do, just like we have a great one. I really like the one on Sherpas uh, in our book as well. Natural spaces like Mount Everest, especially landforms, are often seen as sacred centers, axis mundi of of the world, um, because they are so unusual and take you, you you know, kind of almost take your breath away or something. There's a lot of literature written on, on things like that. So what are the implications then for people who seriously need this kind of travel in a post-COVID world where we can't travel right now? I mean, we're all zooming in from our own houses in, in three different places in the world. And can we do that? It's very ironic, actually. Uh, the, the coronavirus, first of all, was spread through travel and, and through through tourism, no, no small part. I mean, the first people in you know, obviously it was it was Chinese New Year when this was going you know going on. So that was spreading from domestic tourism. But the first recorded cases were of two Chinese tourists in Milan, and then an Italian tourist from, who was in Wuhan that came back. And then, of course, they went to Cuba. Italian tourists in Cuba. So I mean, you're you're seeing it tra- spreading through tourism, and then it of course affects tourism and pilgrimage the most when those are the kinds of people that need to go to the churches and need to go to the temples, and need to go to their sacred centers to. Get well-being to to be able to find balance, maybe not physical well-being, but but emotional and psychological and spiritual well-being, and they and they can't, and 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 so that's something that we have to you know maybe look at more as well.
0: I did uh, notice that a number of chapters in your book were related to getting out into nature in some way, and interacting with the natural world. Um, whether that be um, natural sacred sites or places that have become sacred sites um, over time. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how sacred sites may be changing post-COVID. I've read a few articles about travel trends and people going back into nature. Um, Even in the United States right now, we're seeing a lot of people going camping, um, you know, where they're sort of self-contained with their immediate family members. And, and going to lakes and mountains and, and sites that are in nature. And I know even in Italy, there's a new trail that is getting ready to, to launch, I, I think officially through the national parks. Um, mm-hmm. And right. Um, so I'm, I'm curious um, how, how this, I mean, obviously, these types of initiatives were underway before COVID. Um, but how will this maybe propel us forward um, in a way that is different than what we've seen in terms of where people will be traveling on pilgrimage or what sacred sites may be different um, now than they were before covid
2: i think michael and i we were just discussing this um, few weeks ago on our webinar on the um, post-covid spiritual awareness wellness tourism and we were discussing people start appreciating more of a local um, natural resources and people start appreciating that and they go more and these let- natural resources like local parks becoming more like a sacred space before it was just a local park but now it kind of means more to people for example i would go to bali i would be in bali right now as uh, my kind of spiritual annual thing but instead i go to this small local Actually, we call it local garden in England. So I go to this local garden every day at the same time, 7 p.m. And that's kind of becoming my like a sacred place. So that's I think that's what's happening to many people, especially people who are locked down. And talking about, speaking about Bali, my Balinese uh, academic friend, um, Mahani, was speaking about Balinese people who used to work in tourism industry. They're even coming back to their original family farms and they'll start going back to their own mountains and their beaches, and they find a kind of spiritual for them. So that's also happening there. So people find, people just connect with nature more and there's some spirituality there. And it's, that's been quite popular since 2010, even in leisure recreation studies field, but that's gonna be even more popular, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think that this really shows that you know, the sacred is variable. So, Arnold van Gennep who really started the whole idea of sacred and profane and rituals and things like that, uh, talked about what he called the pivoting of the sacred. And, and he shows, and, and this is back in the early 1900s, he, he kind of goes through in a very top down way, of course, but a positivistic kind of way, that, that the sacred changes, the sacred pivots. You know, what was once considered sacred by a community. Their descendants might not think are sacred, such as like these these mount these these caves of the sibyls and, and like around Naples and stuff. We don't think they're sacred anymore, but my ancestors who were Neapolitan did. So the sacred can come and it can go. And what I think you're seeing right now in in this COVID area, where where everything has been slowed down, so of course you're getting this re- renewed um, appreciation for slow tourism, is that people are rediscovering and revalorizing sacred areas or, or, or resacralizing areas that are closer to home including the house itself so one of the things you know when you're talking about the sacred and the profane which was the book by Iliadi another really old cool, you know comparative religions person um he actually said that the home is actually where we recreate axis mundi in our own in our own lives the home becomes a sacred space um, and of course, in something like Japanese culture, you know, it is really, you, you even have a section of the home that is sacred, but the house itself is pretty, you don't invite everybody in your house all the time. I mean, only really special people can come into that home. That is your sanctuary, that's your, you know, your sacred area. So in Italy, for example, we're seeing um, uh, an embrace of, uh, in, in the tourism field, uh, not this mass tourism, but tourism away from cities, into nature what we would call what they're calling tourism proximity tourism closeness tourism or even cocoon tourism i've heard where where you're going is you're going to places that you trust that you know and trust so they that you can get to in a day trip you might stay overnight like in these agritourisms in nature but you kind of trust the owners their family-run business they're not big multinational corporations they're not big you know they have maybe a couple rooms that maybe another family will be in they're kind of they, they give you like um Meals at zero kilometer, you know, so like the food from their gardens and things like that. Sure, you could still get COVID from that, just as you could get it from a big, big hotel. But what it's doing is it's kind of revalorizing and re recognizing that there is the sacred and the special and the extraordinary in the local. And I think that that's really important. When people are able to see that, I think it's, it, it helps. And for my own pilgrimage uh, sites, you know, they were locked down in Italy and in, in Pennsylvania. So there's the National Center for Padre Pio here in Pennsylvania. It was also closed, you know, during quarantines, just like it was in Pietrocina, his hometown, and also in San Giovanni Rotondo. And they're still opening up. But what what we've, all three of those uh, sites have going for them is that they've always been a certain, in a certain sense, domestic centers. So while you have people from the Philippines and Singapore and Ireland and the UK and Poland, coming in in mass, you know, like, you know, six million pilgrims a year or some years uh, to San Giovanni Rotondo, a big percentage of that are locals who see Padre Pio as a different person, not as this authorized saint that's, you know, going to intercede. And he's, uh, you know, uh, a saint for mercy and a saint for obedience and things like that, the the Vatican says, but they're like, you know, I'm going to go and uh, say hello to Padre Pio and have a, have a fish dinner and then uh, go back to home, you know, and that, and, and I think that that's going to be a saving grace for these towns because it's already in that very – they trust the people there because it's Padre Pio is there and he's there, you know, and, they, and it's close by. They can stay overnight in a smaller hotel. They can have food. They can, it's, it's kind of remote. It's out, and these, these shrines are all out, all three of them, and even in America here. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I think it's just it, – it has that going for them. than then something like a big urban shrine, let's say, in Mexico City, like, you know, for the Virgin of Guadalupe or something.
0: So we've, we've talked uh, about yoga pilgrimage and to an extent, nature pilgrimage and sacred pilgrimage. And I, I sort of conceptualize this as like, we're in this age of hyphenation where, I mean, basically um, pilgrimage can be anything if it's described with some type of adjective. Um, and I'm, I'm so what does that mean? I mean, for the formal study of pilgrimage, if anything can be pilgrimage, then really nothing is pilgrimage. It's not, then, then, then I guess the line between sacred and profane becomes, uh, very fuzzy, um, and almost can change from day to day, from person to person, from time to time within the person. And, and so I know within, within psychology, this has been a a, a huge challenge in trying to gain traction in terms of the formal research in this area, because what are the parameters? What are we talking about when we talk about pilgrimage? Where are we actually heading in this sort of post-1990s breakdown where pilgrimage kind of becomes focused on individual meaning and can be constructed by the individual? So how do we study this? Um, and, and, And again, this is going to probably be very different depending on our academic disciplines, but if we cannot even kind of put parameters and limits on in operationalizing in some way what pilgrimage is, how do we actually uh, move forward in a rigorous way to study this uh, global phenomenon?
2: Well, I would repeat, Michael, like Michael said earlier, I think it's really important to listen from the research informants, then we tell them this is pilgrimage. I think we have to be diligent um, asking them if they think this is a pilgrimage and there got to be some shared rituals and values and meanings in this uh, space or phenomenon to kind of not define, but to kind of describe as uh, even secular, secular pilgrimage.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question, <laughs> but I don't think that it's we're saying that it means or anybody is saying that it, it could be whatever you want. So that is a very common, because I do heritage studies as well. And there was Lord Charteris who was like the head of the British National Trust, I don't know, many decades ago, once flippantly said, heritage could be whatever you want. And people kind of really got upset about that. And it's about the meaning making processes that, that individuals have rather than the top down authorization of things. And I think that that's what we're really saying. We're not saying in pilgrimage that it's willy nilly and anything goes. But what what we are saying is that we should take a step back as researchers from imposing our own categories of meaning onto people. So yes, we are saying that we shouldn't be um, associating religion with pilgrimage. But the problem is, it was it was it was researchers who who started that definition to begin with, and and we can see that it, there there are tons of shortcomings by the Western fact Western researchers in, in in the West exactly in in the West. That was doing that, and and so um, yes, we're saying it shouldn't just be about authorized religions, and it should be we should be thinking, you know, of, of what people say with with our you know concept here, and, and I've and I've used this definition before. I really think that the key to understanding pilgrimage as opposed to tourism, as opposed to other things, and of course these are all categories that we're making up anyway, and pilgrims are tourists, and you know, Turner said that pilgrims. Have to, if a tourist is half a pilgrim and as, as as kind of flippant as that is, it's true because we use the same infrastructures as tourism. We, f- we flip between, just like I flip between being a Catholic devotee and a, an anthropologist in the research, we do have multiple identities that we play and selectively deploy at, at certain times, even very quickly, we code switch very quickly. But what I think is the real crux is that if people are saying that it's a hyper-meaningful voyage, not just a meaningful voyage, but this is something, uh, a voyage to end all voyages, something that I've always wanted to do. And I and I conceive of it not as what, what often they say is tourism, not as, as a leisure pursuit, but something a little deeper, a little bit more. That also means that a lot of pilgrims who are traveling on these trips are not actually, wouldn't consider themselves pilgrims either. You know, I have a lot of um, pilgrims that are going because they're a partner going on this trip or in terms of the irish they you know um there's a lot of rural kind of lower income irish um travelers that come to san giovanni rotondo on a pilgrimage with their parish they save up all their money to go to the mediterranean area to get to the beach sometimes right and and um, the only thing they conceive of is that i'm going to travel with my parish because i'm very religious they're not really that religious necessarily like they're not going because they believe Hard a lot heartily in Padre Pio any more than anything else, but because they want this trip and that, and they're going on that. So I mean, we have to be able to find nuance in these things, and and I think that that's really what we're trying to say here is we really need nuance. We really need to give voice to especially the voiceless people who are who are involved in in these pilgrimages and see what they think as well, and that we should look for the the meaning of the sacred, what they conceive of as the sacred. And if they conceive that this is a sacred journey in some way, a transformative sacred journey, I think that that's where, where Pilgrim's lies. It's not willy-nilly. It's just that we're just changing kind of or modifying slightly the categories uh, that we're using to, to analyze.
0: Yeah, it, it's been interesting for me as I've done um, my own qualitative interviews with Pilgrims and um, sending out the recruitment information and then inevitably with every study that I've worked on, someone or multiple people actually will contact me and say here's the journey i went on is this a pilgrimage uh-huh. and so there's this conversation well what what was it for you what made it a pilgrimage for you do you conceptualize it as a pilgrimage I mean, that's one of the inclusion criteria to be, uh, to, to, to be a participant in the research study. So I do think it does, though, open up a wide uh, range of experiences where people may have not actually thought of a journey as a pilgrimage until they're prompted to think, uh, or until someone mm-hmm. says, oh, you know, Heather is doing this study. Um, I think maybe this journey went on as a pilgrimage. And so just even the Act alone of of the person reaching out to kind of describe the pilgrimage before we even get to the interview in some ways creates like this sacred space that this journey was something very different um, than what they had originally conceptualized it to be.
1: And and what you're showing is that there are also some people are looking towards authorities to authorize their own sense of whether or not this is a is a pilgrimage is like a real serious deal. You know what do you think or what is. Is it called that? And it works in the opposite direction. So, you know, Hillary Kale is a, is a wonderful uh, scholar of pilgrimage up at, I think, Concordia University in Canada in Montreal. And she writes on Holy Land pilgrims, especially evangelical and Catholic pilgrims. But, you know, evangelical pilgrims will not call themselves pilgrims because it's a political thing. Like, don't. Pilgrimages for those crazy Catholics and and Orthodox people they kind of re- recoil apparently when they see you know all of the smells and bells of especially the Orthodox churches in in the Holy Land, and yet it's very meaningful for them. It's very performative for them. It is very they, they have the comunitas, as well as the contestation, but they will never put that 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 name on it. And that's another way, like we talked about earlier with Macau uh, gamblers. Can we as authorities then say, well, you know, what you're doing seems like pilgrimage, but we, rec- we recognize the complexities and the nuances between using these terms, the baggage that comes with it, you know? And I and, and that's what we really want to do in this post-whatever world, post-modern, post-colonial, post-pilgrimage world. I think the reflexivity of the late 90s, of the 90s, has made things more complicated, but I, it has to be more complicated. It was too simple beforehand, and it was too... Colonial, I mean, to be honest, I mean, it was it was simple because we were able to just make everything conform to what, what we, you know, and I'm talking about as a white guy, we white academics want, you know, and it's not that simple. The world isn't that simple.
2: That's why I'm really proud of my chapter on uh, Chinese pilgrimage. I know it, it's still very controversial. I get so many questions, but still, still I'm very proud of uh, having this context in between this Western um, you know, centric centered literature. Mm-hmm. Regardless. But I have, can I ask you a question? You too? Sure. So if I call this as a yoga pilgrimage, these people go to um, certain very famous yoga center in Bali every year, how would you kind of feel if I call it as a yoga pilgrimage? Is it pilgrimage?
1: Is that a test for Heather? <laughs> <how it>
2: <laughs> the final test.
1: I think again. I think if it's a hyper meaningful uh, voyage, I mean, I, I I would stick to, I would definitely stick to a definition. So that's one right. thing. You know, we might be trying to push boundaries and we might be be right. trying to introduce new kinds of forms. But I really do. And and when I edit a volume, as as Jay knows, I am very. I'm kind of a stickler for all of the contributors to to understand the the like what the concept is I, there are a lot of edited volumes out there that, that lack cohesion because they're kind of like well we're just going to put some stuff together and we'll write a very short introduction that you know just to put it together mm-hmm. and there's not that cohesiveness between these are very very different papers and they would otherwise not be very cohesive except for the fact that we've asked we pushed back and we said well we're specifically trying to look at authorizing and not authorizing and all these kinds of qualities and this is the definition and then we did a very thorough introduction, a very long introduction mm-hmm. actually, to to really make sure that they all um, that that it gives logic to that. So if you're able to do that, if you're able to argue and apply a definition to to the yoga travelers that come that you know whatever it is, it doesn't have to be that it's hyper meaningful. but you know that, that this is a definition of it and this is how they conform to that and you show through your chapters the evidence, then then I have no you know I have no problem in it as a pilgrimage. So I did a lot of teaching as a grad student in um, the Asian Classics program at uh, University of Chicago. So I had just finished doing the educational tour operator stuff with predominantly wealthier retirees and things like that, taking them all over the world. And then I was like thrown into this by my late um, one of my mentors, Paul Friedrich. Um, he said, oh, you could you could deal with the Mahabharata, teach the Mahabharata and the Vedas and all this stuff. I was like, "What am I? you know, <laughs> because I used to do Vietnam and Cambodia. And so I had to learn that stuff, but um, I found it really rewarding. But then I would take, I took them to India and I took them to Cambodia and Vietnam and stuff. It was always the hardest. It was the most challenging when I had yoga practitioners in those classes, teaching South Asian classics, teaching the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and the Vedas and and everything, because what yoga means is, is completely different, entirely different than what, American yoga gym people think. And it, and it's the same thing. I also taught Christian classics and, and teaching the Bible was the hardest thing in the world because everybody thinks they know what the Bible means. And when you ask them to read passages, they get very upset oftentimes. So you learn diplomacy teaching these kinds of sensitive topics, but it, it's really mind opening for people to understand what, what really yoga means and karma means and all that kind of stuff. Um, because they use it a little, they think that they read the, the Bhagavad Gita, but they really didn't. And they're applying it to to practices that, that have nothing to do really, very little to do with a lot of the practices in, in India, for example. But nevertheless, they want to go to India to go to those centers, their sacred center of yoga, you know, uh, they want to go to a real ashram, because they recognize that there's this kind of, that's the sacred center far away. This is what um that's a pilgrimage. <laughs> and actually, look at the the They're work of It's a and th- so there's a there's a good. I think you should integrate. Um, uh, Lauren Griffith Miller, uh, uh, my colleague, uh, has written on apprenticeship pilgrimage, is what she calls it. There's a book in my book series on it. Um, and she 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 does capoeira practice. So like the sort, it's almost religious, like Brazilian. You know, kind of kickboxing, mm-hmm. dancing, religion, kind of a thing. Uh, my another uh, colleague of mine, Sergio Gonzalez Varela, who also wrote one on in my book series as well. And both of these are apprenticeship tour, uh, tourism, or pilgrimage, she calls it, um, because they learn in their home country, but they recognize that they need to study with the guru, whatever that you know, whatever that, that maestro is in the land that it came from. And so for them, even though their idea of capoeira is different, even though their idea of yoga is different, to travel on that, to apprentice with somebody is itself traveling to a sacred center. And it is considered a pilgrimage by many of those people. And and yeah, I mean, so that could be also a key that you should uh, be integrating as well. This idea of apprenticeship pilgrimage is is very common and yoga is definitely um, within that vein. Thank you,
0: Michael. <laughs> I um recognizing that we could probably continue chatting for even on and on and oh. on, uh, yeah. Uh, and and I'm hoping to hear from you about. I mean, what's exciting? We talked about so many exciting um, elements of pilgrimage and how it's. Uh, defined in specific pilgrimage shrines and sites and sort of how this idea has evolved over time. So where are we heading? I mean, what are, what are the new frontiers in pilgrimage? Where can uh, early career or even grad student, early career scholars or grad students look to uh, for where, where we are heading in terms of pilgrimage studies as its kind of own domain?
1: I think I'm, um, Obviously, I'm thinking more in terms of this, of, of the current pandemic that we're in. Um, and I am not one of those people. If you read a lot of the literature that's coming out, that's coming out a little bit too fast, but but it's coming out, um, you get two perspectives you have, um, especially in the tourism literature and pilgrimage. Or, there's very little on pilgrimage in it. Um, but But some are saying, let's get back to business as usual as quickly as possible. It's all a marketing thing. Let's just pretend it never happened. Uh, and change the destination branding. And then there's the other uh, extreme where they're saying, this is a time of, for valuable pause and reset, and it's going to be fundamentally changed and transformed, paradigm shift. I, I think there's a midpoint there. I don't think that either one is, is going to happen. But I think you know there's very little right now written on pilgrimage in that area. And, and um, with that, there's actually surprisingly little written on pilgrimage and and wellness. There is, there's been, you know, Jill Dubish and Michael Winkleman wrote years ago on this. It's there, but it needs to be brought to the fore a little bit more. How exactly does pilgrimage work to, um, to create a sense of holistic well-being? Can we really get beyond, again, more Western, you know, cosmopolitan medicine kind of ideas of well-being as only being biological and thinking much more holistically about what well-being is? Um, and how pilgrimage can hit on lots of uh, holistic aspects of of healing is very very important. And then, what are kind of the dynamics? How are these big pilgrimage sites, even in the West, going to think about um, changing to meet those criteria? You're clapping, Heather. Is that uh,
0: <laughs> well? I mean, that's right in my <laughs> wheelhouse. That that's what I'm really interested. In. I mean, my PhD work was on kind of the therapeutic value of pilgrimage, and that's where I've that's the space that I've continued to. Uh, Have a lot of scattered energy in, but again, it's very hard to sort of like harness this in one direction. So I appreciate what you've said. Um, I'll be playing this podcast for all kinds of people and say, "Look, see, he validated
1: this." (laughs) (laughs) The other thing too is as as especially if you're looking at psychologists, we really need this. Is one thing I try to teach in my intro to anthropology classes is that we have to be able to first of all get beyond, um, understand, and be reflexive about our own ideas of. Of well-being, and that everything is physical. Like we look at everything very in a physical way. To the point, and my dad's a psychologist. You know, to to the point where if it if it can't be explained in in terms of physicalities and materialities, it must be psychosomatic or in your mind or somehow the mind is doing something. There's a reluctance on the part of Western, um, different kinds of Western people, scientists and things, to maybe allow for. Uh, space to be like you know we really don't know and maybe there are other things that are going on and the reluctance to even consider that I think is really really important there's a very old piece by Ewa Ong uh, that maybe you've read um, that I recommend everybody read it's um can't remember exactly what it is but it's on Malaysian sweatshop workers who um you know the, the sweatshop owners uh, kind of imposed uh very taboo cleanliness ideas in, in the sweatshop and then they started seeing ghosts. And so you brought in a psychologist to psychoanalyze them and then everybody started seeing ghosts, you know, and it would be a lot better if you just understood that, that they see ghosts and, and say, well, maybe they are, or maybe this is something that we don't understand as opposed to saying, well, it's all in your mind. and Let's, let's take, a, take a young unmarried woman who's seen ghosts and talk to an older man in private and, and, and see what happens in an Islamic society obviously they're gonna see more ghosts, you know? But you know, those kinds of things, like we have to be able to first of all, get beyond ourselves and again, look at the bottom up, which is what, you know, anthropologists try to do and, and to maybe read a little bit more to understand, for example, the therapeutic aspects of ritual that we really don't understand uh, or that we can't explain through biophysical means. Rituals do do crazy, you know, really crazy things. I mean, Paul Stoller and others have written on this stuff. I don't even know if he, he knows if he's really done the kinds of sorcery that, you know, he's practiced, you know, whether he believes it or not. And that's, and that actually was one of the the best things that anybody, the students ever say in their um, evaluations of me is, I don't know, I'm frustrated that I don't know whether he believes this or not, right? You know, (laughs) and it's exactly what I try to do, even when I'm researching to come back full circle from the beginning, you know, in doing research, I'm a practicing Catholic, I'm I'm also an anthropologist. I don't want to, you know, it's irrelevant whether I believe in what's going on here. Can I get beyond myself? Can I get beyond my own science can I, and, and, and look at what and appreciate people's faith and appreciate that things can go on that we can't explain? We should be able to do that.
2: I was also doing uh, my PhD on chemotherapeutic kind of side, how Americans are benefiting from meditation in their leisure time. And that's how I continued in Chiang Mai. Like I met this, um, Western tourist in Chiang Mai. And why do you meditate? What's the benefits? And I met so many people saying meditation saved my lives. And some, some of them actually try to commit suicide and didn't succeed and. They started meditating and they they got committed to meditation and that's how they moved to Chiang Mai for full time so I met so many people saying meditation saved my life healed me and it's everything for me this kind of people and in tourism I'm in tourism area and tourism studies and absolutely lack of study about this part of uh, um, these questions even pilgrimage, is spiritual tourism, it's all about marketing, all about destination marketing. It's everything is management and marketing. So I, yeah, I wish we have more um, discussions about this therapeutic side, how this form of tourism can help people kind of get over from depression, anxiety, divorces or spouses that this is what, this is kind of a problem I ran into from my uh, participants. So yeah, the healing, the... The self-transformation, that kind of a site can be interesting and can be expanded in tourism studies among tourism scholars and beyond.
0: To learn more about Michael's and Jayon's work, please check out their book, Pilgrimage Beyond the Officially Sacred, Understanding the Geographies of Religion and Spirituality in Sacred Travel, published by Routledge. The book can be found via an online search and purchased through various outlets. You just heard Pilgrimage Beyond the Officially Sacred, produced by Dr. Heather Warfield and edited by Janine Marr. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter and Facebook, or by email info at meaningfuljourneys.net or our website www.meaningfuljourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.